1: Hello. Welcome to the New Books in History podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today it is my blessing to be in dialogue with Professor David Zimmerman. He is Professor of Military History in the Department of History at the University of Victoria in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. Today we will be discussing his newly published book, Ensnared Between Hitler and Stalin, Refugee Scientists in the USSR, published in Toronto by University of Toronto Press, 2023. David, it is my sincere honor to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you, Harry. I'm glad to be here. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired your scholarly journey?
0: Well, I um, was actually born in uh, Brooklyn, New York, but my family moved to Canada when I was uh, eight years old. And I actually grew up in Toronto, where I went to uh, Jarvis Collegiate in downtown Toronto, and then did my undergraduate degree at the University of Toronto in History, And then I did my two graduate degrees at the University of New Brunswick in Fredericton, New Brunswick. I've always been fascinated by history. I think my father gave me my love of history. And I've always felt that history and understanding our history provides you with insightful ways to examine our contemporary world and to put the events in in our contemporary world into uh, perspective. So to me, history is really, should be the building block of knowledge. Increasingly, it isn't. But really, an in-depth understanding of the past is crucial to an effective working democratic society.
1: What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to your readers?
0: Well, the inspiration, it, it's a little bit complicated, but let me explain. In around 2000, I was just finishing uh, a book I had written titled Britain's Shield, which is a history of the radar air defense system that saved Britain during the Battle of Britain in 1940. And I had a question. And the question that I asked was the scientists that worked on developing radar in Britain in the 1930s were people from different parts of the political spectrum. Some of them were far left socialists. Some of them were very conservative to the right of center. And I wanted to know how these people came together to work together on what was a military research program. And what I found was that all of the people involved had been, uh, were involved in a, in the 1930s and beginning of 1933 with organizations in Great Britain, which became known as the Society for Protection of Science and Learning, which helped to rescue German scientists and other academics who were dismissed mainly because of their racial heritage, mainly because they were Jewish and were lost their positions and, and in many cases in probably up to about 2000 of them fled from Germany, hoping that they could find some other place to continue their scientific and academic research and teaching careers. So that's basically how I got into this work on uh, scientific refugees. And I discovered that the records of the, of the, of the Society of Protection Science and Learning or the SPSL were unbelie an unbelievable archival source at the Bodleian library in Oxford. And I discovered there was a similar rich archival source that, of the American Emergency Committee, which is in the New York Public Library. So I began to research, just out of interest, the extraordinary stories of these organizations. And I came across a file in the records of the SPSL, which was about all these scientists who had gone to the Soviet Union in the 1930s, looking for a place of refuge from Hitler. And suddenly in 1937-38, either were arrested or forced to flee for their for their lies for the Soviet Union. I was interested in this, I copied the entire file. And the next year, I was invited to go to a conference in St. Petersburg, uh, and I thought, I'm going to Russia, I'll talk about this file I found, these people I found. And so I wrote sort of a very brief summary paper. And I went to this conference, it was the worst experience I think of my life. The conference was a disaster in every shape of the word. At one point, a third of the conference delegates were mugged Unfortunately, was not amongst them, but amongst other things they did is they just forgot to include me in the program, even though I had a letter stating I was on the program, so I never gave the paper. So when I got back for this fiasco of going to Russia, I put the paper away, but then about 15 years later, I was asked by a colleague, we are doing an in-house departmental seminar series on current original research. had just had some cancellations and he was desperate for someone to fill in the slot. Do you have anything? And I said, I have this paper on these scientists that went to the Soviet Union. So I dusted it off and said, well, this is, I want to polish this up. And in the period between 2001 and 2015, something called the internet had been invented. And the internet um, exploded the numbers of sources that were available. And where I had tracked down 16 individuals from the file or the SPSL that had gone to the Soviet Union. I very soon through very, very extraordinary research. I found not 16 of these scientists, but 36. And their stories became more and more and more fascinating. As I began to conduct research, I began to write an article. Soon I had 86 pages, far too long for an article. And I realized I was writing a book. And the story of these people became truly compelling. A story that I felt I had to tell about these uh, individuals who went through the reality of being ensnared both by Hitler's persecution and then by Stalin's persecution. After some of these people, if they escaped Stalin, they got enmeshed in Hitler's snare once again back in Western Europe Uh, once the Second World War began.
1: What are the primary themes in your book? What story and stories does your book tell?
0: Well, I think, first of all, my book tells a a tale of a group of people that experienced all of the incredible um, hardships that befell much of Europe, certainly throughout, well, really, the entire 20th century, is that the notion of you know, that the mass movement of people, of refugees was, for instance, confined to the period just after the Second World War, or that um, the ending of the Second World War brought an end to the sufferings of people who had been caught up in the war. Uh, But also specifically to look at um, the people who are theoretically the intellectual elite of society, the academics, the university professors, the scientists, and how their lives and their life work could be disrupted by the most horrific forms of persecution, which are exemplified by Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin, two of the greatest mass murders in history. And the fact that these people experienced this and most of them lived through their encounters and these encounters profoundly shaped for many of them their lives. Uh, was you know some of the the themes I wanted to interweave into this story because it's not just about them in the Soviet Union. It's about how they got to the Soviet Union, what happened to them when they're in the Soviet Union, and then what happened to them if they're able
1: to escape uh, after they fled. Can you interpret image thirteen for us? What does it signify? What does it mean? I
0: have to look up what image 13 is. Just a second here. Ah. Okay. Sorry, image 13. Uh, This is a basically a, um, it's basically a document that was provided by the Polish authorities to a German Jewish doctor by the name of Siegfried Gilda. And Gilda perhaps exemplifies the, the greatest tragedy amongst all of these individuals that went to the Soviet Union from Germany after having lost their jobs as a result of Hitler's persecution of the Jews. And it wasn't just Gilda uh, that suffered, but his entire family. In fact, Gilda and his wife and his young daughter, who was actually born in Moscow while the couple were there, all of them were Perished in the Shoah. And so, what happened with Gilda is a remarkable story which really encapsulates some of the major themes of the book. He was a young, brilliant medical scientist just starting his career. He had just finished his doctorate in 1932. He had received a research position. At a Berlin hospital, he married his sweetheart, whose name was Ruth, uh, and everything was going great. And then in April, 1933, he received a letter from his hospital saying, "Um, we're laying you off. We don't have any money to pay you. Uh, Sorry about that, get lost, effectively. And the reality is, they were saying is, you're Jewish. We don't want you here. Uh, And they actually fired him before the Nazi law, which would have allowed them to do it legally, came into effect. So Gilded, didn't know what to do. He had to support his wife, and uh, he had to get out of Germany, so he fled to France. And in France, he found there was absolutely no opportunities for him as a young medical researcher. So trying to think of a way he could make himself more employable, he actually took another PhD in uh in physics and chemistry, uh, where he hoped to apply uh, medical applications of things like uh, x-rays to medical science. He thought that would make him employable. It didn't. It didn't help him. He was desperate. He didn't know what to do. And then someone suggested to him that he approach a Soviet government agency that was recruiting doctors, particularly medical scientists, to work in the Soviet Union, and he went to Moscow. And he got to Moscow in 1935. He and Ruth were happy. They had a pretty small apartment. City was overcrowded. It was dirty, but he had a good job. He was being well paid. Um, Ruth and uh, Siegfried decided to start a family. They had a little girl. And then in 1937, Gilda, like almost all other refugee scientists in the Soviet Union, <laughs> excuse me, if they weren't arrested, got a got a dismissal notice saying, you're a foreigner, we think you're a, basically a foreign agent. We're expelling you from the Soviet Union. And those came out, quite out of the blue for Siegfried. He didn't know what to do, but he had to leave. He and his wife ordered a train for the Lithuanian border from Moscow. They got to the Lithuanian border. He was taken off the train, and he never came back. And Ruth and, and her daughter continued, eventually ended up in Paris. Siegfried was in fact arrested because there was some minor error in his paperwork. He was sent to a, a Soviet prison in Moscow, where he remained probably under torture for the next three years. And then in 1940, there was a, a prisoner exchange uh, when there was this period of time when Germany and the USSR had signed the non-aggression pact in 1939, where the Soviets thought they would make their ally, new allies happy. By exchanging prisoners, German citizens, they held in their prisons for Soviet prisoners, the Germans held. And they began to send back people in their prisons to Germany. And they didn't even think through the fact that some of these people were going to be Jewish. And Siegfried Gilda ended up being one of those people transferred in early 1940 to the Gestapo uh, and then an occupied Poland. And the Gestapo took one look at Gilda and said, We don't care if you're a German citizen. You're going to the Warsaw, you're going to Warsaw. You're going to be a Jew there. And eventually he was he was sent to the Polish Jewish authorities who gave him a job at a hospital, the Jewish hospital in Warsaw. And eventually Siegfried Gild was with everyone else, Jewish people of Warsaw, were imprisoned into the ghetto. And that document is his basically his license to practice medicine uh, in Poland, uh, even though he was a German, and he didn't even speak Polish, certainly not initially. And that's a fascinating document because it was not one I found, but it was one found by a Polish researcher who was doing very separate research looking at Nazi medical experiments on people in the Warsaw Ghetto. And Gilda's name came up because Gilda was forced to work as a pathologist, even though he wasn't trained as a pathologist. And his name came up as one of the doctors who did autopsies to help the Nazis with their experiments. He was coerced into it. But it also turned out that Gilda worked with a group of other Jewish doctors on a secret project to record the effect of mass starvation on the population of Warsaw again. And so this was a way to record in detail the horrors that were uh, brought upon the, the people of, of Warsaw, the Jews of Warsaw, by the Germans slowly starving the entire population to death. And eventually, we don't actually know specifically what happened to Gilda, but he was amongst the many uh, prisoners of the Warsaw ghetto. Either he died there, maybe a starvation, or he was sent off to his death in Modenek, um, one of the death camps but he certainly was dead by 1943. He never saw his wife again. His wife and daughter were rounded up in Paris and they were sent in 1943 to Auschwitz, where they perished almost was certainly gassed as soon as they arrived. And thus ended the family of Siegfried Gilda, a real tragedy and a tragedy that had dramatic effect on the extended family. The only survivor of the family was Gilda's uh uh one of Gilda's sisters escaped. Sorry, both of his sisters escaped, one of whom had children, and they never knew who would ha- what had happened to their the children never knew what happened to their great uncle. And I actually was able to track them down and tell them about what had happened to their great neph to their great uncle. And how he and the entire family had
1: met their deaths uh during uh, the show. What is your book's contribution to the history of espionage?
0: Well, I don't want to go too much into this, but I think there's something important about what my book says. Because a lot of the people that went to the uh, Soviet Union were communists. One of the things that my book shows very clearly, of the 36 that went, only about a dozen were actually members of the Communist Party. A lot of people have written that every German that fled to the USSR because of Hitler were communists. They weren't, at least in this group of scientists. But a dozen of them were communists. And what's interesting about them, the vast majority of them were involved in espionage for the Soviet Union prior to their departure uh, from the from the Soviet Union. A physicist by the name of Fritz Hudermans and his wife, Charlotte conducted economic espionage uh, for the Comintern, basically the Communist International, based in in Moscow. Another physicist by the name of Herbert Marwakin reported on the latest atomic research uh, in in secret confidential uh, meetings. He passed it on to the Soviet scientific attaché in the Berlin embassy. Uh, a guy by the name of um, Wolfgang Steinitz and his wife uh, spied for the Soviets reporting on the situation in um, in Germany, but also went to spy uh, on the crackdown on Communist Party members in nearby states, including Finland and Lithuania. So the fact that so many of these um You know, one of the things that people have complained about the witch hunt of communists, and don't get me wrong, there was a witch hunt of communists, but there was, and people have to acknowledge this, there was a basis of fact that many of the people that were active members of the communist party were dedicated members to the point where they actually were betraying their countries and conducting secret espionage for the Soviet Union. Even more remarkable, that even when they got to the soviet union and they revealed some of the horrors of the soviet union some of them continue to engage in espionage in the ussr uh steinitz wolfgang steinitz and his wife uh spent time going to the german high commission in leningrad uh they hid the fact that they were members of the communist party and uh, they would report back to the soviet sacred police any interesting Tidbits they had found in the cocktail conversation at these parties at the German uh, consulate in Leningrad. Another notorious figure uh, was a guy by the name of uh, Herig Gerhard Herrig and Herrig had joined the Communist Party in Germany after Hitler came to power. He had worked uh, fighting the communists, sorry, fighting the Nazis uh, in Germany. He realized that was futile and he fled to Leningrad where he very quickly began to work for the Soviet secret police, the NKVD, spying and uh, informing on the German expatriate community in Leningrad. And then in 1937, Herod was recruited by the NKVD to go back to Germany because Herod was interesting. He was one of the few that wasn't Jewish, so wasn't subject to Nazi racial laws. And he was sent back to the Soviet. He was actually, uh, sorry, Germany. He was trained by the Soviets to be a spy. He was actually sent back with a radio to send back reports to the Soviet intelligence services about the situation in Germany and what things they could do to undermine the German state. Uh, unfortunately for Harrod, he was one of the worst spies in history. He didn't even get off the boat from Leningrad when it arrived in Germany. The Gestapo somehow knew he was a spy. They arrested him on the boat. They found his radio and he was sent as a political prisoner, uh, to, uh, the German concentration camp at Buchenwald, where he joined with a huge gang of communists who were held at Buchenwald, who effectively ran the camp for the Germans and after the war, he became one of the most notorious members of the scientific community in East Germany were engaged in ruthless uh, persecutions of anyone who, who opposed to the communist regime in East Germany uh, going right up until the end of the 1950s. So there are a lot of uh, tales interwoven of the, uh, of the involvement of, of some of these people in espionage activities.
1: What new light does your book shed on the Great Terror in the Soviet Union?
0: Well, obviously, the Great Terror is a much bigger story than these 36 individuals. We're talking about millions of people. We don't know how many died. We know that hundreds of thousands, if not millions, ended up in the Gulag in Siberia, oftentimes arrested for the flimsiest reasons or for no reason at all. But because of what happened to these 36, some of them were arrested and were summarily executed. A chemist by the name of Conrad Wieselberg from Austria, who had actually just gone to the Soviet Union because he fell in love with the Ukrainian peasant girl, was taken away and would be summarily executed in December, 1937, simply because a friend of his had angered the NKVD. The noted uh, chemist, Hans Hellman arrested in Moscow, shot within a few weeks of his arrest. Uh, and others uh, ended up like Siegfried Gild, including Fritz, Fritz Huderman and uh, Alex Weisberg, another physicist, were all arrested and thrown into Soviet um, prisons for three years until they were turned over to the Germans, as I described with Gilda. Uh, for, but the rest of them, the majority of them were able to flee. And when they got out, the fact that they're able to flee said something very important. Almost all the ones who were able to escape were the non-communists. None of the non-communists, with one possible exception, were actually arrested. Excuse me. They were simply they were simply um, told to leave, or they fled before they could be arrested and got out. What's really interesting about it, uh, what it says about the the um the great terror excuse me what it says about the great terror is that um what really happened after the second world war when some of these witnesses to the great terror began to report on what they had seen that wasn't actually even after the war it was before the war one of the people involved in this story is uh was a was the wife of uh Conrad, oh sorry, of uh, Alexander Weisberg, the first wife of Alexander Weisberg. And she uh, had gone there and actually married, um, had married Alexander Weisberg in Car- Kharkov in the Ukraine when he was there. And her name was Eva Zeisel. And Zeisel um, was also a member of the communist party. She was one of the first arrested. She was arrested, accused of an, a plot, a completely fake fabricated, non-existent plot to assassinate um Stalin and um Alexander Weisberg who was her husband she would eventually divorce Alexander Weisberg but Alexander Weisberg worked to try to get his wife out of prison while he was still free and he was actually eventually successfully launched an international campaign of protest against her arrest so ISA wasn't a scientist she was actually one of the great ceramic designers of the twentieth century, and she was eventually released and then kicked out of the Soviet Union. And she had had as a lover before meeting Alexander Weisberg while she was in Paris, a great uh, intellectual by the name of Arthur Koestler. And Koestler had been a communist. He actually had been converted to communism by Alexander Weisberg in Berlin. fired Alexander Weisberg leaving for the Soviet Union, and <laughs> Eva Zeisel met met Koisler in, in Vienna. And it was at that point they learned that, well, Zeisel had gotten out. Her husband Alexander Weisberg had been arrested and had been thrown into prison where he would remain for three years until he ended up being sent back to Poland. So either Zeisel told Arthur Koisler what was going on in the Soviet Union. The Koisler had just come back from experiences of fighting this in the Spanish civil war where he had been arrested and held by the fascists and been tortured before he was released. And Koisler began to realize that all of these extremes, whether on the right or the left, were equally evil. And he wrote one of the most famous books against tyranny ever written, called Darkness at Noon. And in this book, he basically was set in a jail cell with a prisoner being psychologically tortured by the secret police. And while he couldn't have known exactly what that was going on, was happening to Alexander Weisberg, he knew from Eva Zeisel what was being done to him because Eva had experienced some of that. And so at the end of the war, Arthur Koisler became one of the great champions against Stalinism. And in Western Europe particularly, people didn't want to believe that the Great Terror had actually happened. And so Koisler's book was a key testimony of what had happened, but even more important because it was a work of fiction, he encouraged... His friend, Alexander Weisberg, who eventually escaped from the Germans in Poland, he survived by hiding out in Poland during, period from 1940 to 1945. Alexander Weisberg wrote his memoirs, which related in graphic detail the tortures and the horrific conditions he had experienced in Soviet prisons and his estimation of the millions of people that had died uh, due to Stalin's persecution of his own people. And a lot of people, particularly uh, communists in Western Europe, absolutely refused to believe them. They actually called some of these people liars who who dared to say that Stalin was a mass murderer. Eventually, Alexander Weisberg became a a key witness in a famous trial, a libel trial, where the Communist Party newspaper in Paris was sued by a leading left-wing intellectual, who who the newspaper called him a liar, for stating that Stalin was a mass murderer. Now, Alexander Weisberg gave this incredibly dramatic testimony in Paris, which was one of the many uh, things that began to convince people that communism might not be the solution for all of France's economic and
1: social problems in the period after the Second World War. Can you tell us about Heinrich Lufsitz? Can you describe his life, his life in Yugoslavia? his internment in the Castello-Gichlielmi camp and his wound from a German hand grenade?
0: Okay. Lufschutz is one of the really interesting figures of my book because he's the sort of person that no one's ever going to write about. Because, you know, we hear a lot about the famous physicists that escaped from Germany and worked on the Manhattan Project. But Lufschutz was a chemical engineer. In fact, he was probably one of the leading experts in the world. i something really exciting the chemistry of concrete. It actually isn't very exciting, but in fact, it's very important. And he was an incredibly accomplished scientist. He had written over 60 academic papers. He really was an employee of, of, he was the top employee of the German state laboratory that actually researched ways to improve concrete for use on roads and in construction projects. But he also had become a lecturer at the Technical University in Dresden in Germany. So he was an academic. He lost his job in 1933, again, because he was Jewish. Uh, and his problem was he was already in his, he was already, already almost 50 years old. And he knew there was a tendency in all societies at the time to discriminate against anyone, anywhere near retirement age. And one of the things he does is he applies to the British help organization, the SPSL, and he sends them a profile picture. No one sends pictures further applications. It wasn't required. He sent a profile picture of his of himself to show that, well, I'm maybe forty nine, but I'm really very young at heart. Look at my picture. I'm a young, vigorous man. Anyway, despite his incredible qualifications, he couldn't find a job anywhere, but he had some connection to Moscow and he went to Moscow. We don't know much about what happened to him in the Soviet Union other than nineteen thirty seven. He ended up having to flee from the Soviet Union along with all the other foreign scientists. And he ended up in Yugoslavia because he had actually been born in the old Austro-Hungarian Empire in Trieste. And this, now Trieste was part of Yugoslavia and he was actually became, uh, therefore as a Yugoslav citizen. So he could find refuge in Trieste, but the only job he could find was working in a chemical, plant, sorry, in a concrete plant. You know, basically just testing concrete samples from the plant's production something that was very, very much beneath his skill levels. He still couldn't find a job anywhere else, despite his very frequent appeals. But then when the Italians invaded Yugoslavia, and he became part of the, you know, in the area occupied by the Italian army, the Italians said, well, excuse me, you were born in Trieste. Trieste, is we consider it now part of Italy, you're an Italian. So he's an Italian, but he's it us a Jewish. And eventually the Italians began to run, uh, began to arrest their Jews, but uh, he wasn't sent to a German concentration camp. He was actually sent to a camp run by the Italian government, and he was sent to probably, uh, you know, if there's such a thing, the nicest concentration camp in Europe. It was on an island in the middle of one of the big lakes in Italy, and the commandant there, he didn't have anything against these Jews, and uh, he basically said, well, you know what? Here's the deal. I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure you guys get the same food that everyone else on the island gets. Now during the day you could wander around this island, and there was there were some villages on this island. You can wander around, do whatever you want, just at night, before we lock the gates, make sure you're back home. So Lufchips enjoyed this sort of captivity, but it was a rather benign one. But then the Allies invaded Italy and the Italian government surrendered. And the Allied forces were gradually working their way up the boot of Italy. And they were getting close to where this camp was. And the commandant of the camp received words that the Germans were planning to arrive to take over the camp and to ship the inmates all back to a death camp in Poland. And so the commandant said, well, any of you folks who want to try to escape can. And Lofschitz managed to convince two of the guards to roam across to the mainland, where he actually then had to make his own way across German front lines into no man's land to reach the British army in safety. And at some point during his escape, a German soldier threw a hand grenade and it exploded and he was badly wounded in one of his hands. Uh, he did manage to reach the British line. They patched him up sufficiently, and they sent him south where he recuperated in a hospital uh, in Italy, run by some nuns. After the war, though, Luschitz didn't know what to do. The only thing he could do was to go back to what was again Yugoslavia and work in the same chemical, uh, the same concrete plant. He appealed desperately to get out. But he was told by the SPSL in London, by now you are so old, you're at retirement age, we cannot help you. And so Lushitz, one of the great uh, chemical engineers of his era, uh, whatever happened to him, and I don't know exactly when he died, he had to live out the rest of his days in communist Yugoslavia, uh, working for a uh, a concrete plant, never being able to regain his scientific or his academic career. And in that sense, it was a truly tragic story.
1: Can you comment on how the various scientists described in this book became committed Marxists? Many of them were indeed devoted Marxists. How did they become so? Well,
0: you know, as I said, the minority were actually members of the, of the communist parties of various countries mostly Germany, but there was a couple that were communist party members of Austria. And the reality is, is that you have to be somewhat sympathetic. And this is where I think we've made a mistake to think that people were seduced into communism. Uh, the reality was is that their lives had gone through horrendous upheavals and they had seen the worst political persecution imaginable in their early lives. Conrad Wieselberg, uh, the chemist from Austria who lost his life in the Soviet Union, uh, his family had been forced to flee anti-Semitic pogroms in the old Austro-Hungarian Empire. And then when they had left the town that they were in, where the pogrom occurred, they went to another nearby city. And during the First World War, the Russian army, which murdered many Jews during the First World War, was approaching their city and they fled to Vienna. So Kahneman Wieselberg had already experienced the scourges of anti-Semitic persecution, of murder, of violence, and also in the, in the Austrian state of the 1920s and 30s. There wasn't really any democracy. Jews still were subject to some virulent anti-Semitism. Wieselberg, for instance, who got a PhD from the University of Vienna in chemistry, was unable to find an academic job primarily because he was Jewish, and he was looking for some sort of social justice. The communists appeared to offer some form of social justice where people would be considered and treated equally and fairly. Now, of course, there is an illusion of communism, and the problem with communism is the same problem that Nazism has, or fascism has, or um, whatever extremistism has, is that it doesn't tolerate dissent, and it also allows powerful individuals in the name of preserving more ideological belief system uh, to unleash the most horrific prosecutions in the name of protecting their ideology. In the case of Joseph Stalin, of course, communism. So for many of these people who became communists, they saw this as a way to improve the human condition. And if you look again at the Germans who became communists, they had lived through the, the Kaiser Reich. They had lived through the horrors in the First World War, which included, many people forget, not just the mass death in battle, but massive deaths caused by starvation uh, due to the Allied blockade of Germany and Austria-Hungary. And then the collapse of the German state at the end of the First World War, the uh, conflict, conflicts between the extreme right and the extreme left, the lack of democracy, the hyperinflation of the 1920s and the Weimar Republic, all of this led to these people to believe that communism was the way forward to improve people's lives. And most of them, not all of them, would discover the errors of their ways.
1: Can you tell us about Conrad Weisselberg, as well as his wife, Anna, and his son, Alex?
0: Well, as I've already mentioned uh, about Conrad, uh, he was a he was a great friend of Alex Weisberg. And Alex Weisberg had gone to Kharkov even before Hitler came to power. Uh, he had gone there because he was actually spying for the Soviet state. He was a really bad spy. And the Soviets were convinced that the German police were going to arrest him and force him to talk about everyone else who was spying for them in Germany. So Weisberg had gone to Kharkov, where he got a job as a physicist working at the uh, The Physical Technical Institute in Kharkov, the Ukrainian Physical Technical Institute. Now, Weiselberg and Weisberg, you got to be careful because these guys have very similar sounding names. But Weiselberg and Weisberg had been friends in high school. And Weiselberg was not very happy with his life. He was working as an industrial chemist in Austria, and he decided to go visit his friend. And he was really impressed by what he saw in Kharkov. There was all sorts of buildings going on. Uh, the, the Soviet Union had invested vast amount of money in into scientific research facilities. They were hiring scientists right, left, and center. But then to the cap matter off. While he was visiting Alexander Weisberg, Weiselberg met this beautiful Ukrainian peasant girl who was serving people meals in the uh, technical institute's cafeteria in fact she spilled food on him on weiselberg by accident and she was she was convinced she was going to be fired for doing this and weiselberg reassured her that he would not report her that it was just an accident they laughed about it they fell in love <clears throat> weiselberg then went back to Vienna, where he had a fiancé. He wrote to his friend Alex Weisberg, can you find me a job in Kharkov? And Weisberg eventually found him a job at something called the Coal Institute in Kharkov as a chemist. And he went there and he married Anna, this uh, peasant girl. He left his fiancé behind to be Anna. And uh, things were going pretty well for them. Uh, they had their own apartment. Everything was going really well. Then one day, he got a letter from the Coal Institute, You're fired. Now, he didn't understand this, and no one really knows exactly why. But it's believed because Alexander Weisberg, his good friend, had made some remarks against the Kharkov local branch of the Soviet secret police, the NKVD. And in order to get back at Weisberg, they had gotten his friend Weiselberg fired. Now, Conrad was really desperate. He had this lovely young wife. He was desperate in love. He didn't want to leave. So Weisberg said, well, why don't you come and live with me in my apartment? I get this huge apartment. And I'll get you some short-term contracts at the institute, my institute, and you continue to work. So Conrad said, okay, that's what I'll do. And he and Anna moved in with Alexander Weisberg, and they lived there. And, in fact, Anna got pregnant, and they had their son, Alex, who was named after Alexander Weisberg, in December 1936, I believe. But then... Uh, the NKVD in Kharkov decided they wanted to teach the scientists, the physicists at this physical technical institute a lesson. They had been very, very um, vocal in their criticisms of some of the policies of the administration of the institute and of the Soviet state. And so in, the, in March 1937, the NKVD arrested both Alexander Weisberg and Conrad Weiselberg were arrested and thrown to prison. Now, for whatever reason, Alexander Weisberg was simply kept in prison and tortured with them trying to make him confess. Conrad Weiselberg, who had done absolutely nothing other than being friends with Alex, uh, was kept in prison. He willingly gave a full confession, which was a confession that I hadn't really done anything, except I knew some people you didn't like. Uh, but this didn't sit well with the NKVD, and they arranged in December uh, of thirty-seven. Conrad Weiselberg was taken out and simply shot. He was one of the first of the foreign scientists. I think he was the second of the foreign scientists to be summarily executed with hardly even a show trial, to condemn him to death for being a traitor. To the, ger- to the Soviet state, spying for Austria or Germany. So then <clears throat> you have his wife and daughter, very young child, sorry, wife and son. The son is very young. I mean, he's only a year old, or less than a year old, I think, when his dad is murdered. And they're declared enemies of the state. Um, they She can't find a job. A friend gives her some sort of cottage on the outskirts of Kharkov. Some other people give them just enough food to survive. And then when the Germans invade the Soviet Union, Kharkov is occupied, and she somehow manages to scrape together enough food when tens of thousands of people in Kharkov are starving. Alex, this young child, wanders around Kharkov with a gang of other kids begging German soldiers for food. And Alex is often sent to the German soldiers to look really pathetic because he's the youngest. And Alex knows there's a 50-50 chance either the Germans gonna give him food or he's gonna kill him. Somehow Alex survived. Uh, after the war, um, Anna and Alex find it incredibly difficult because they're still labeled as you know enemies of the, uh, the, the, the family of an enemy of the state. Eventually though, like with many other victims of the great purges, and the mass of deaths in Stalin. After Stalin's deaths, many of them are given retroactive, posthumous pardons. And eventually Alex is able to establish establish himself uh in a uh in life in Kharkov. And he's a and he eventually has a family. And it isn't, however, until many, many years later, until after the end of the Cold War, that he's finally able to access his father's NKVD file, which show how everyone knew he was innocent, show the, uh, the horrific injustice that was done to murder him. And as well, during this time, the family in Kharkov managed to get in touch with Conrad Weiselberg's remaining family. Who had survived the Second World War in Vienna, and they had mostly migrated to Great Britain after the war, or sorry, in some cases had actually gone to Great Britain before the Second World War, escaped the Holocaust, and so um, they reestablished contact with these people, and they were able to escape from the from what was then Russia until you know Ukrainian independence wasn't quite there yet, because they were able to convince the Austrian government that. Alex at least was a European citizen European Union citizen and the evidence they had was the NKPD file of uh, of Conrad. and so they were able to get EU passports that escaped and the family Anna did uh, <clears throat> eventually die in in the in the Ukraine. but uh, Alexander and his wife and then his children all managed to escape to Great Britain where they lived. Alex and his wife, lived in Britain at the end of their lives in liberty and freedom. Of course, now the family is experiencing the horrors of what's going on in the Ukraine, where many of, of their extended family remains, and of course, the horrors of that war. And in many ways, the story of the, uh, the Weiselberg family is the story of the 20th and into the early 21st century of the horrors of war, the horrors of persecution, which never seems to
1: end. Can you elaborate upon Guido Beck? Can you tell us about his life in Portugal, his role in Argentina's nuclear bomb project, and the various relocations he experienced during his lifetime?
0: Okay, well, Guido Beck is a fascinating. Man. He was really one of the up-and-coming young uh, theoretical physicists in Germany. Although he was he was actually a Czechoslovakian Jew who did his training much of his training in either uh, in in uh, outside of Germany. But he actually, in the late 1920s, was considered to be such a high flyer. He was one of the scientific assistants to the great Heisenberg. Uh, They discover the uncertainty principle in quantum mechanics. And Zoginabek was really at the cutting edge of physics. He worked for uh, Heisenberg for three years. That was about the limit you could work in such a job. And then he was offered a professorship at Prague, the German University in Prague. But as tensions grew between uh, Czechoslovakia and the new emerging German state under Hitler, the Czech government canceled the funding for Beck's professorship and Beck ended up fleeing because he couldn't go back to Germany with Hitler there. He was Jewish and he actually ended up getting a grant to go uh, through the American Rescue Committee to go to the University of Kansas. But the University of Kansas had only money enough to keep him for a year. And so that took his only other option for a job. He went to uh, Odessa, and he also taught at the University of Kiev theoretical physics. In fact, when he left Kansas City, he went on this incredible round-the-world journey just for fun. And he went from Kansas City uh, via Hawaii, uh, Japan, a lot of Vostok to the Ukraine. Uh, And then he was there, and... He wasn't a communist he wasn't in any way really politically active and he was amongst with everyone else that survived was one of the group people that decided they had to flee in the spring of 1937 uh, uh, i believe he had a flee from ukraine and he ended up in france and in france he was able to get a some research support and what happens to this poor guy he's just escaped he's escaped hitler already once he's now escaped stalin and then France is invaded by the Germans. He gets sent into a camp by, after the German conquest of France, by the Vichy French regime. And after helping a large number of people to escape from Vichy France, he himself escapes by getting a, a visa to go to Portugal. He takes a train from France across fascist Spain to Portugal. And he's offered a chance to be the first person to teach theoretical quantum mechanic physics in a Portuguese university and he's well remembered in the Portuguese physics community as the person that began the study of that sort of theoretical physics in, in Portugal. Unfortunately for him, the dictatorship in Portugal, after a few years, they hated Jews as well and they demanded all the German-Walker G Jews leave. Well, Beck doesn't have a lot of options at this point, but he's offered a job at a research center in Argentina. So he goes to Argentina, and he's there for about uh, eight or nine years. And one of the things that happens after the Second World War, the government of Argentina decided, wouldn't it be nice if we had our own atomic bomb? And they began to investigate the possibilities of them building an atomic bomb. Now Guido Beck, here he is. He is probably one of the great theoretical physicists in Argentina at the time, and he has this close personal personal connection to Heisenberg in Germany, he who's invited to come to Argentina to give them advice. Well, at that point, somebody in the United States gets wind of this. And there's a series of magazine articles, which the American government got a little bit worried about. What do you mean they're inviting this Nazi scientist to Argentina to help them build the bomb? And what does this guy Guido back and why is he doing this? And eventually the Americans, I think, interceded Uh, And the Argentinian atomic bomb program went nowhere. So Beck was though very heavily involved. And then unbelievably, they have to understand Beck's been on the run since 1933. We're getting into about 1952, almost 20 years. He's lived in, where he went from Czechoslovakia to the United States, to the Soviet Union, to France, to Portugal, to Argentina. And then the government of Juan Perón begins to persecute Jews and Jews in academic positions are fired. And Beck finds himself again being forced to flee. He's very fortunate. He ends up working for an astronomical uh, center in Brazil, and that's where he stays, and for the rest of his life. He, by that point, he's out of the mainstream of science. Um, <clears throat> unfortunately, his career never very fulfilled the promise of his early days. And as he said, mostly what I was, was I was training people in basic physics in third world countries. And interesting enough, what he says of all the countries of the third world I taught at, probably the best was the Soviet Union. Because listen to the Soviet Union, they were honest and earnest about learning the science.
1: Can you tell us about the academic refugee crisis of the years 1933 to 1937?
0: Okay. When Hitler came to power, one of the very, very first acts was a law about the German civil service. And you have to understand that all German academics who have a regular full-time academic appointment, even to this day, are civil servants. the law that Hitler passed and came into force in April 1933 called for the racial purity of the civil service with a few exceptions, insisted upon by the then president Hindenburg of Germany. And all non-Aryan peoples, including many people who had been not been Jewish for several generations, people whose grandparents had converted to Christianity in order to assimilate. Anyone who was what the, the Nazis called non-Aryan or was anything more than about a quarter non-Aryan, even if you were a quarter non-Aryan, there was a possibility that you would be dismissed. And if you were completely Jewish, you were dismissed almost immediately. And what happened was we get an extraordinary number of people. There's a a great debate about how many there are. But anywhere from about 1,200 to 2,000 academics suddenly find themselves unemployed and unable to work in their chosen fields. In Germany, although it's been somewhat eclipsed by the end of the 1920s by universities in places like the United States and Great Britain, Germany is still one of the great world leaders in many fields, including the sciences and the social sciences. But so you have some of the leading scholars in the world that are suddenly found themselves being forced to flee. And they don't know what to do. They can stay in Germany. at, the, at In those early days of Hitler, it was still possible for a Jew to stay in Germany. <laughs> but the reality is they couldn't, unless they had some sort of... Um, skills that could be translated into private industry, they were unemployed and unable to survive. So those people began to flee. And what happened was, as a result of this, in places like the United States and Great Britain and in France and in other countries, uh, such as Holland, uh, academics in those countries come together to form organizations to try to help these people. And at first, they, they're thinking this crisis is only gonna last a year or two. Eventually, Hitler will become through his senses and realize these Jewish scientists are way too important to throw out of your country. So initially, they just think, well, we'll just provide enough money for some of these people to survive. We'll bring them over. We'll allow them to work in our research laboratories. That'll be great. But then as Hitler's persecution expands and, Jew was begin to lose more and more rights, and there's no sign that the Germans are going to change their mind about the treatment of of German Jewry. It suddenly becomes a permanent crisis, and how many of these people can possibly be accommodated? And part of the problem is you have to understand that the Great Depression is going on, so universities and in, in all over the world are desperately strapped for cash. In the United States and the and the in the years after 1929. Over a thousand regular academics lost their positions due to financial uh, financial crisis. So the very notion that you would be raising money to hire these German and Jewish scientists and, and academics, for many people, this was like awful. How could you think of doing this? The amazing thing was, though, that on the whole, a very large percentage of these people were able to escape. And many of them were accommodated within universities and colleges and research institutes and were able to carry on with their lives. However, people had to often go to desperate extremes to find some place they could survive. And one example of that, of course, is those the majority of those who went to the Soviet Union didn't do so because they had a choice. They did so because it was their only option And they went in many cases to the Soviet Union very reluctantly. They saw it as the only possible option after all other options had been, uh, had been tried and failed. By the way, the academic refugee crisis would get worse in 1938 when the Germans marched into Austria and then Czechoslovakia. And that they, uh, there's another whole group of academics, who were forced to flee from German Nazi
1: persecution. Can you describe the Nazi-Soviet prisoner exchanges between 1939 and 1940?
0: Well, as I've, I've already mentioned, the, the what happens is that 1939, just prior to the German invasion of Poland, the Germans and the Soviets signed the Non-Aggression Pact, which effectively makes them allies. And in the pact, there's this the, the notorious secret clause, where Germany agrees to divide Poland up with the Soviets. So while they're not in a formal military alliance per se, they're cooperating with each other. They're friendly. In fact, for communists in the Western world, the signing of the Non Aggression Pact with the Germans was one of the great episodes where communists in in the Western world had to search their souls. How could they? Accept what Stalin had done and signed an agreement with the, the great enemy of communism, Hitler. Uh, but what happened in in this time, prior to the German invasion of the Soviet Union in June 1941, there was actually some effort to cooperate with each other. And the Soviets side, well, we have a lot of Germans we've arrested over the years. Uh, let's be show the Germans what nice people we are. We'll send back. These prisoners, these German prisoners we have in our camps. And we'll ask the Germans to send back some Soviet citizens and arrest. Well, there were a lot more Germans in Soviet prisoner camps than there was Soviets in German prison. But the exchanges began in late 1939. And groups of uh, prisoners were sent across the uh, Polish, well, the frontier that divided Soviet-occupied Poland from German-occupied Poland, and they were sent across the bridge and handed over to the Gestapo. Now for some of these German prisoners, the fact that they're communists, well, that's a bit of a concern, but mostly they were allowed to go back to Germany, although they might have been arrested for a while, they might have been kept under observation by the Gestapo. But if you were Jewish, that's a different story. And of the 36 of the ensnared, three of them who had been arrested uh, were sent back to uh, the control of the Gestapo. A fourth person was going to be sent. And um, he, uh, Fritz Nother, who was a mathematician, he was on the list to go back. And I th- we think what happened was the Germans rejected him because Noether had been declared an enemy of the German state. But Noether's story is when the Germans wouldn't take him, the Soviets kept him in prison. Uh, Noether was murdered by the Soviets in 1941, when the German army was approaching this particular prison. They took all the German prisoners out of the camp because they figured they're all German spies and they shot them. So that was Fritz Noether. But the three that were turned over Two of them are Jewish. We've already talked about the sad fate of Siegfried Gilda, who ended up in the Warsaw Ghetto. Then there's Alexander Weisberg, who somehow miraculously, through his own amazing devices and good fortune, survived and escaped the Nazis, one of the few Jews in Poland to survive the Second World War and the death camps and the ghettos. And the third one was Fritz Hüdemann, who was only a quarter Jewish. And Hudekmanz was allowed back into Germany. Uh, originally arrested, eventually some of his physicist friends, powerful uh, physicists in the German scientific community, interceded on in his behalf, and he was released, though under kept under observation by uh, the Gestapo for the rest of the war. And so this prisoner exchange resulted in, you know, extraordinary circumstances uh, when both. Gilda and uh, Weisberg ended up in Poland. There was a brief period of time where they are actually allowed to write to their families in the West. Uh, there were campaigns to try to get Alexander Weisberg uh, an American visa so he could escape Poland. Uh, Zygmunt Gilda's family tried everything in their power, but there was actually a letter that arrived, sent to Gilda, one of Gilda's sisters who had gone to Denmark, saying, hey, I'm in Poland. Uh, can you please get me out of here? Unfortunately, they, it didn't happen. Gilda died in the ghetto. Alexander Weisberg survived. And as for Fritz Hudermann, he continued to do, he managed to sort of resume a scientific career in Germany, but he was never allowed to work in the mainstream uh, German defense industry research programs. Uh, and so for many of these stared, it put them into this incredible second jeopardy And it's amazing that of the three,
1: two survived. Can you tell us about the wives and children of the refugee scientists impacted by the events that you chronicle?
0: Yeah, I mean, I've tried as much as possible in the book to talk about the wives. And by the way, some of the scientists were women, so it wasn't just men. Uh, There were uh, certainly uh, three of the actual scholars were women. Uh, Who lived through this event, uh, but getting to know the stories of the of the children and the and the and the and the wives of these people was particularly important. I was really lucky; I was able to track down some of the family members. Uh, I was able to uh, talk, uh, for instance, to the uh, son of one of the physicists. Who actually was old enough to remember his life in the, uh, in the Ukraine and related to me the story of, of what his experiences were. I was also able to talk to uh, the son of a mathematician who went to the Soviet Union by the name of Michael Sadowski. Uh, he was born in the Soviet Union when his family was there. He has no memory of it, but he certainly could relate to me um, his stories, uh, his, his parents' stories of what they experienced. And then there was, most extraordinary, the daughter of um, of Kurt Zinneman. And Zinneman's uh, daughter, Hamela, uh, was actually not born until after the Second World War. Her parents, after they left the Soviet Union, were very, very fortunate. They got an academic position at the University of Leeds in England. And she was born in 1945, but her father told her and mother told her many, many stories because both the father and mother had been arrested by the NKVD in the summer of 1937 by the NKPD in Kharkov. And they had spent nine months in a Soviet prison before they were released and allowed to go back to Germany. They didn't go back to Germany. They knew what would happen. They went back to Germany and they ended up in Great Britain. But Pamela uh, Zinneman uh, Hope, which is her married name, actually wrote uh, as a poet. And she actually wrote a book of poems recounting her parents' stories of life in the Soviet Union and life in the prison camps. And one of the things I was able to determine about her poems, which were relating her parents' stories, were they're unbelievably accurate to what actually occurred? Because one of the major discoveries I made within the Soviet Union, I I wasn't able to find very many documents within the Soviet Union itself, was was able, uh, through the help of one of my colleagues, Who's a historian of the Ukraine, to find her parents NKVD file, which had never been seen before, and I was able to look at Pam Zinneman Hope's poems recounting her parents' stories, and their secret police file, and they meshed unbelievably. And the book I actually use her poems because I think that they're almost as good as real historical documents, because they tell the truth of their horrible experiences. They suffered. And of course, some of the families of these scientists already talked about Conrad uh, Wieselberg, but also the um, physical chemist Hans Hellman, who was murdered. His family also suffered as much as Conrad Wieselberg's family did, and his son Hans Jr. Uh, was actually uh, had, his, had his name changed by his mother's relatives, who his mother was Ukrainian in order to try to hide him from the secret police after his father was arrested. He didn't even know really his true story until after the Soviet Union collapsed. He was able to regain his German citizenship and was able to move back to Germany in his later years. So some of these people actually were haunted by this experience. Uh, the experiences of um, of the family of Fritz Noether, the mathematician who was eventually was murdered in the Soviet Union. He had two sons that were uh, late teens, early adult, who had gone with him to the Pons- Siberia. Now, when he was arrested, the Soviets allowed the two boys to escape, but they didn't know what had happened to their father. They eventually were able to migrate to the United States. There's... Sweden. They didn't know what had happened to their father until the Soviet government actually sent them an official account and an apology until the late 1980s. So they lived for 50 years not knowing what had happened to their father, that he had been murdered. There had only been one sighting of their father that anyone reported in uh, the prison in 1941. And other than that, they had no knowledge. And they never knew until they themselves were in their senior years of what fate had befallen their father, and that had a profound impact on the family. Uh, All of these things continued to haunt the family for many, many decades after the events, uh, after their families fled the Soviet Union,
1: those that were able to escape. Can you tell us about the refugee scientists who sought refuge in France? France? What did they teach us about the history history of France during World War II? Well, there's a
0: couple of things about France. France is the, let us say, uh, there's a, there's a multiple tragedies with the fall of France. Because France was one of the few countries in the world that had a very liberal refugee policy. Although initially, refugee academics were not allowed to work in France, they could at least go there and were allowed to stay, but they couldn't make a living, so that was hard. Eventually, in 1938, the French created a new a set of institutions and funding which made them a place of refuge for many of the scientists who fled from the Soviet Union in 1937-38. And when France fell, all these people suddenly found themselves, either they were able to flee again, like Guido Beck, or it will be in one case, a very, very important scientist in the history of French biochemistry, Edgar Leder, who was an Austrian, who had gone to Leningrad in, 19, uh, in 1934, 19, sorry, 1935, and then had fled from Leningrad to France. He was married to a French woman, and he was able to establish himself as a French scientist. And he actually survived during the German occupation of France and through Vichy France. He was basically hidden by his colleagues and survived. And then there is uh, another sad case, uh, though Emmanuel Vasser. Who was a Austrian physicist who had actually gone to Leningrad in, in 1932 before Hitler came to power in Germany? He had been kicked out in 1935. He ended up appealing desperately for help. He couldn't find any help. He ended up in France as the only place that he could find any refuge. I don't know anything about him, what happened to him in France, except that he was one of the many foreign Jews. That the vichy french police arrested handed over to the um the germans who then shipped him off to his death in one of the death camps so being in france if you couldn't escape and if you didn't have good connections you weren't considered a french jew letterer was considered a french jew there was a high probability you were going to be killed and another very interesting uh scientist that goes to the Soviet Union, uh, is uh, Helmut Simons. Helmut Simons, uh, he's a a biochemist as well, and he uh, goes to the Soviet Union, he he flees to France, uh, where he desperately hangs on. He does sort of part-time jobs, he can't get any work, and he's arrested by the French government when the war starts because he's still a German. His son is with him. His son is an adult. His son joins the French Foreign Legion, and his dad, because his son has joined the French Foreign Legion, is released from prison. Uh, and so then the Germans invade. Helmuth flees south to Marseille, where he lives for the next few years. He's constantly getting arrested by the Vichy French police because he's a foreign Jew. Helmuth is a foreign Jew. His son is serving with the foreign legion in North Africa. And every time he's arrested, he sends a message to his son, help. And his son goes to his commander in French foreign legion, who sends a message. You have to release this guy, Helmut Simons, because his son is a soldier in the French Foreign Legion, and therefore you can't arrest him. And he was released. But eventually what happens with Helmut Simons, when Vichy France collapses and the Germans take over, he's uh, he's on his way to the death camps. And somehow um, he's released uh, one last time, and, they just, and he's able to walk out of a, a camp. But he's rearrested Marseille in 1943, targeted by the Germans to be summarily shot uh, for a crime which had actually committed by an Italian soldier which the Germans were trying to cover up and he's in his cells in Marseille and he's next day going to be executed when the doors open and the the guard says uh, come with me, follow me and he's looked through underground tunnels and passages to the port uh, where he's told that the uh, French underground had paid a ransom abroad to get him released and uh, the French underground uh, gave this Helma Simons a fake passport a fake identity and a train ticket to a town near the Swiss border where he's given instructions of how to cross into Switzerland and he escapes I mean the Swiss actually arrest him they hold him in a in a camp he's arrested and held in a camp in Switzerland until finally someone post bond to get him released uh, but so the for those who went to France it was a real problematic very high probability you're going to die. And those that did survive did so under the most extraordinary circumstances. If you couldn't escape uh, from France uh, by uh, 1942, uh, there was a very high probability you were going to be killed.
1: Can you comment on the roles played by scientists as activists?
0: Well, if you're talking about in the uh, Cold War period, uh, there is um, certainly two groups of people. One is, amazingly, some of these people remain active in the Communist Party, and two of them, uh, Wolfgang Steinmetz and um, Gerhard Herre, go back to East Germany, were their activists in support of the Communist regime and engaged in political oppression. But then we have scientists who have escaped the Soviet Union. Some of whom were communists, like Alexander Weisberg. Another is Lazo Tisa, who isn't a formerly Communist Party member, but he's sympathetic. And Tisa becomes a physicist professor at uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Uh, And he briefs his good friend, a man by the name of Edward Teller, about how horrible the Soviet Union really is. But Teller becomes one of the great uh, right-wing scientists in the United States, who becomes the father of the hydrogen bomb. I've already talked about Alexander Weisberg, who uh, engages in a very, very activist role in organizing Western intellectuals against communist communism and the blind support of, of, of Stalinist Soviet Union, and it's amazing how many of these um, individuals take a very very strong stance and have a very profound impact upon the uh, upon the shape of the Cold War, both on the communist East and on the and of the West. And there are none other people, you know, such as um, uh, Edgar Letterer, who in France, it remains a very committed socialist slash Marxist, but not so much that he supports Soviet policies or communist policy, but it's very much in the anti-war movement, the anti-nuclear movement, uh, the anti-Vietnam War movement uh, in the 1960s. So many of these people become very political active and have a profound influence well beyond their small numbers. Now, I have to say this is an important caveat to this. The vast majority of the survivors of the Enscared wanted absolutely no part in political activism. All they wanted to do was get on with their scientific careers, but to be left alone. But still, given their small numbers, those who were politically active were incredibly important in the Cold War era.
1: As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this book?
0: Well, in my perhaps society, I'm now working on a a much broader study of academic refugees called uh, Scholars in Flight from Hitler. I'm trying to understand, uh, explain what allowed some scientists to successfully escape and reestablish their careers elsewhere, why others never escaped sometimes never even left Germany. And in many cases, often found themselves caught up in the Holocaust. And of course, for many of them, it meant they didn't survive. So this very broad study uh, of this is in fact, I've created a database looking at about 1700 of these scholars, and then a more detailed examination, a sampling of 85 scholars whose lies I'm, I'm recounting in some detail to get this better understanding
1: of the flight of these scholars. I wish you the very best of luck in that very necessary research. As we end today, I am your host on the New Books Network, Ari Barbalat. Today, it's been my blessing to be in dialogue with David Zimmerman. He is professor of military history in the Department of History at the University of Victoria in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. Today, David and I have been in dialogue regarding his newly published book, Ensnared Between Hitler and Stalin, Refugee Scientists in the USSR, published in Toronto by University of Toronto Press, 2023. Thank you.